So those of you that know Adrian and I a little bit will know, probably, uh, that, that, that we're sort of foodies. We're not really foodies, not like true foodies, but we're sort of foodies. Uh, ever, ever since we started dating, and, and certainly after we got married, we, we've really loved to go to different restaurants, try different things. Um, we especially like going places where they're going to do something at that restaurant that there's no way we could even dream of doing it at home. Uh, and, and yes, I have been known to pull out my camera and take pictures. So maybe that makes me a foodie. I don't know. Here's the thing, though, especially when we go to those places that really, that really blow you away, right? Where you look, at the, you look at the food that gets presented and you think, how in the world did they do that? I could never do that. Here's the thing about those restaurants that I found again and again. What I always remember about those places is not the food, but the people I was with. I, uh, I think the reason for that is the same reason that many, most of us, actually like church potlucks with their jello salads and deviled eggs. Why we really look forward to Thanksgiving, whose menu never changes. Why actually we, we really enjoy just a good weeknight family dinner. It, it really is true that no matter how good the food is, it's not what you eat, but who you're eating with that makes the meal special. You know, in every culture around the world, and I've had the privilege of traveling lots of different places, lots of different cultures, and this is true every time, in every culture around the world, there is a strong connection between eating and friendship, eating and fellowship. And this isn't just about culture. This reaches into religion. I won't bore you with details about other religions, but I, we can say about Christianity, right, from, from Adam and Eve's first bite of the forbidden fruit to the Passover meal to the Last Supper, we can tell the story of Christianity as a story of shared meals. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, United We Stand. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about food, eating because that's what Paul is talking about. The, the, the Corinthians, as just to remind you, the Corinthians are a church that's divided. They're, they're divided over what it means to be spiritual. And one of those divisions is a, it's, it's about food. Some have argued that it's a question of what you eat or don't eat that makes you spiritual. And as we've seen, Paul disagrees. He disagrees strongly. I've kind of made the point in previous weeks, it's not what you give up, the, the, the food that you give up, but it's who you give yourself to that marks you as a spiritual person. For Paul, it's a question of fellowship, spirituality, at least in the Christian sense of the term, is all about fellowship. As Paul concludes his argument about food in our passage this morning, the question he asks is not what's on the menu, but who's at the table? And so I ask you this morning, as we are getting ready to dive into this, spiritually speaking, 
Whose table are you eating from? Spiritually speaking, who's with you at the table? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, this is found on page 1017, 1017. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at the entire chapter plus the first verse of chapter 11 because the people that divided up the chapters didn't seem to notice that the first verse of chapter 11 really went with chapter 10. So we're going to go into the first verse of chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to chapter 11, verse 1, again, found on page 1017. As you're turning there, let me just remind you, Paul has just finished in the previous chapter, in chapter 9, using himself as an example of giving up your rights for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your fellow believers. He's argued that self-sacrificing love is fundamental to following Jesus. And, and it's actually the proof that, that you have been changed by the power of the gospel. Paul is concerned for the Corinthians. He's concerned that perhaps they've deceived themselves about who they really love and therefore who they're actually eating with. So here's, here's the, the main point. Here's the argument. It's, it's not the food, but the fellowship that matters. That's what he's going to argue in chapter 10. It's not the food, but the fellowship that matters. That sounds like a really good Baptist argument, doesn't it? Because we're into food and fellowship. And as, he, as we work through the chapter, we're, we're going to find that he's got two reasons for this. It's not the food, but the fellowship that matters. He's got two reasons. The first reason is that those who eat with idols provoke God's jealousy. Those who eat with idols provoke God's jealousy. Let's, let's read beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes, and don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, so Paul in this section points out that there are two tables that we can eat from spiritually. There's the Lord's table And there's the table of demons. You see that there in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. He he couldn't be more clear. There are two tables, but you can't eat at both of them and expect to get away with it, at least not as a professing Christian. To eat at the table of demons as a Christian is to provoke the Lord's jealousy. It's to invite his judgment. And Paul points out that's a judgment that we won't escape since we are not stronger than he is. Now, Paul offers two reasons for this conclusion, kind of two points of proof. There's the history of Israel, which we're going to look at here in a moment, and there's the nature of idolatry itself. So if you're taking notes, the first point, this first point is the longest one, and it has two subpoints. Don't want you to get confused. All right, so his first proof is the history of Israel. In verses 1 to 4, go back to the beginning. In verses 1 to 4, he reminds them that Old Testament Israel was baptized into Moses. They ate the spiritual food that God provided for them there in the wilderness. But what does he mean by all that? Well, well, he means that they were publicly and externally, like physically, saved. So it means to have been baptized into Moses and in the cloud and the sea. They, they were rescued from Egypt. They they went through the Red Sea as on dry land. They were under the cloud of God's presence. They were physically, externally, publicly identified as God's people. And as God's people, they participated publicly, physically, externally in the spiritual meal that God provided them. What was that meal? Well, it it came in the form of manna from heaven, bread from heaven, and, and, and water from the rock, which Paul identifies there in verse 4 as Christ. You you know the story, right? That the people don't have any water. And God says to Moses, see that rock over there? Go over and strike that rock and water will flow. Paul's saying, that rock? That was Christ. All right, so a little aside here, and this is very much an aside uh, because it's not really Paul's main point. But once again, we saw this last week, Paul is teaching us how to read the Old Testament. Paul reads the Old Testament like Jesus read the Old Testament in Luke chapter 24. Luke Luke records Jesus talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and and Jesus kind of rebukes them. This is after his resurrection, that, that they weren't reading their Old Testaments. Like, you shouldn't be surprised that the Messiah was crucified and then got up from the dead, if because this is what the Old Testament's been telling you. The Old Testament, according to Jesus, is a book about Jesus, 
And Jesus read it that way. Jesus wasn't just being clever. When in in John chapter 4, he said, look, I'm the one that gives living water to the woman at the well. Or or in John chapter 6, where he says, look, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus wasn't being clever there. He was just somebody who'd been reading his Old Testament and knew that that was a book about him. That's the way we should read our Old Testaments. And if you would like help with that, that's a new idea to you, please come talk to me. We've got a bunch of stuff on the bookstall that will help you with that. But I, I promise you, if you're a Christian and you've never thought about reading the Old Testament as a book about Jesus, it's going to change your life. You're going to feel like somebody gave you a brand new Bible. Well, anyway, so Paul is telling us something there about how to read the Old Testament, but that's, that's not actually not his point. His point is, okay, Israel, they're publicly and externally identified with God. They are God's people. They've been rescued. They've been saved. They've been eating this spiritual food, and it did them no good. It did them absolutely no good. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Paul wants the Corinthians to see the connection between the Corinthians and Old Testament Israel, and he wants them to take the warning. Like Old Testament Israel, the the, the Corinthians have been publicly baptized into Christ, and, and, and they are publicly participating in the spiritual meal that God has given them in the Lord's Supper. And in, in so doing, they are publicly identifying with Jesus. Paul wants them to realize that that's not going to do them any good if they engage in idolatry. He actually makes this connection twice. You see it there in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. And then he says it again in verse 11. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Well, what kind of idolatry did Israel engage in after God had saved them? Well, it turns out it's the same kind of idolatry the Corinthians were tempted to. You see, he gives several examples there in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. He starts with the golden calf from Exodus 32 that we heard read earlier there in verse 7, which started with a meal and ended with a party, literally an orgy. Davey's going to talk about that more tonight. Maybe not the orgy, but he is going to talk about that verse more tonight, if that helps encourage you to come back at five just to see what Davy actually talks about. So that's his first example, the example of the golden calf, this meal that ends in an orgy out of their idolatry. And, and then, like, then he moves in verse eight, and he refers to Numbers 25, where, where Israel does it all over again, only this time it's not the golden calf, it's Baal. And again, starting with a meal, ending with an orgy, and a lot of people die. And then in verse 9, he gives a third example. He's referring there to Numbers 21, where the people, he says, they tested Christ. They were grumbling about the food in Numbers 21. They were grumbling about the food that God had provided, and so they were testing Christ and his provision. And once again, there's judgment. 
And, and then in verse 10, don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. That actually, if you know the, the story of Exodus through Numbers, that could be a lot of different situations. They did a lot of complaining, often about the food. But I think maybe in this particular instance, what Paul probably has in mind is number 16, when, they, when, when a faction arose among them and complained about Moses' leadership. Now, what's striking about all those examples is the way they map onto the Corinthians' experience. We've seen this, right, as we've been walking through. What's characterized the Corinthians? Indulging sexual immorality, prideful grumbling, and eating at the temples of idols. Paul says to the Corinthians, based on Israel's history, don't do it. God judged them, and they're an example for you. You have been warned. And that's a message for us today as Christians. It's easy to think about messages about idolatry are really aimed at non-Christians. Actually, most of the messages about idolatry in the Bible are not aimed at non-Christians. Some of them are. Most of them are, in, they're, they're, most of them are aimed at us. God's people we are constantly tempted to leave our exclusive devotion to the Lord and to go after other gods. So Christian, what idol is tempting you today? Is it the idol of your sexuality or your sexual desires? Is it the, the prideful idol of success or money? Is it the self-indulgent idol of creature comforts and convenience? Maybe it's just the idol of needing to be right, of needing to be respected. Maybe it's a relationship that's taken first place in your life. You know, We don't put our idols in shrines very much anymore. We don't put them up on a shelf. But they're still the same, and we identify them the same way. Your idols are the things you can't live without. Your your idols are the things that you will defend quickly in anger, even against the people that you love. Your idols are the things that you hide from everybody else, lest they be taken away from you. Idols come in many forms, and the Christian is not immune to their allure any more than Old Testament Israel was or the Corinthians. But we should not think that just because we've been baptized, just because we profess faith, just because we're admitted to the Lord's Supper, just because we're a member of the church, that the Lord will tolerate idols in our lives. We have Old Testament Israel's example as a warning for us. God will judge idolaters, even those who publicly claim to follow him. This has been a theme of Paul's, going all the way back to chapter 5, verse 11. 
So we need to hear that warning. We need to take it seriously. This is why Paul ended the previous chapter the way he did, right? He's like, look, your life should look a certain way. This is a race that we are running all the way to the end, and I don't want to get to the end, and I want you to get to the end and find that you started well, but we're disqualified in the end. The warning is here as a means of redirecting our heart's affections away from our idols and back to the Lord. But Paul doesn't just say, don't do it. That'd be kind of what I would do. I had a a good friend, actually, who was a pastor, and whenever his church members would ask him, what what can we do to help you? He would say, don't sin. Yeah. Yes, that would help me, but that's not very helpful to you. (laughs) Paul doesn't just say, don't do it. He knows the law is powerless. And so what does he do there in verse 13? He points us to the faithfulness of God, but God is faithful. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. You know, sometimes I think we justify our favorite idol and the temptation that it brings by telling ourselves that no one really understands how hard I have it. No one really understands how bad my temptation is. Boy, if they, if, if they were tempted like I was tempted, they, they would fall too. We basically, we, we lie to ourselves when we say that, or we're believing the lie that sin is telling us. Paul says it's nonsense. Like newsflash, there's nothing unusual about the temptations you face. I know you think there might be. I know you think you may have it worse than everybody else. But no, no, actually not. There is nothing unusual about the temptations you personally face. They are the temptations that are common to us all. Oh, yours may take this particular shape, and mine may take this other particular shape. But they are the common temptations that we face. Now, what's unusual is not your temptations. What's unusual for the Christian is the help that God provides. Paul assures us that God is both sovereign and faithful in the midst of our temptations. God does not tempt us, but Paul makes it clear that God will not allow us to face a temptation greater than we can bear. He he also makes it very clear that that God's merciful. He always provides a way out, a a, a means of escape, kind of like an escape hatch, right? When when the pressure is really bearing down on you. So, So Christian, how do you respond in the face of temptation? Don't believe the lie that your sin is telling you that you have it worse than everyone else, that it's, that it's too hard, that, that here it is again, so it's just inevitable that you're going to give in to it, so you might as well just go ahead. But that's what sin says to us. It's lying to us. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that God knows how to rescue us from trials. And if God knows how, then God certainly will 
How, how does he do this? Well, God has given the ordinary means of grace, the common means of grace that are needed for the common temptations that we face. But what are those means of grace? Well, there's prayer. There's the scriptures, which we should turn to when we feel temptation rearing its head. Don't wait and play around with the temptation and then decide you're going to pray or then try to figure out what, what scriptures should you go look to. No, go there quickly and early. Uh, another ordinary means of grace that he's given us is he's given us each other. He's given us the local church for, for accountability, for encouragement. I mean, I have, a, I have a group of guys that have told me, and they mean it, you can call us any day, any hour. If you are feeling tempted in a particular way, we don't care where you are in the world, we don't care what hour it is, call us. Because you don't want to be alone in your temptations. It is a good gift that God has given us in each other. Don't, don't hide from God's means of grace by failing to bring other people into your life and sharing with them what your particular temptations are so that they can help you. He's given us baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. And what do baptism and the Lord's Supper do? They remind us of God's great love for us. I think most of all, though, the most important means of grace that God has given us is he's given us himself. Christian, Christ is present with you in your temptations and in your trials. He is with you, right next to you. Look to Christ. Look to him. You know, when anger strikes or, or lust threatens to overwhelm or, or self-pity or self-indulgence looms large, just for a moment at that point, take your eyes off yourself and put them on Christ. Consider the Lord and you will see the way of escape. John Piper has talked about the importance of fighting images with images as, as we battle temptations of, of, of lust. I think that idea can be applied actually just across the board. Put your eyes on Christ in the midst of your temptation. Consider his love for you. Consider his provision for you. Consider his sacrifice for you on the cross. He is there at your side, ready to help. Faith looks to Christ, and in its moment of temptation and need, faith finds in Christ all that it needs. Well, it's not just Israel's example that is the proof that eating with idols provokes the Lord's jealousy. Paul offers a, a, a second proof it turns out idolatry is not just against God's law. It's also a betrayal, an adulteration of our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with each other. You know, you know what adulteration is, right? When, when something that's pure gets contaminated with something that shouldn't been there and it ruins it. 
This happens to our food sometimes. What can happen to relationships? And I think this is what's going on in this comparison of the two tables in verses 15 and 20 to, to 22, the, the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul says that in the Lord's Supper, which, which we're about to celebrate, in the Lord's Supper, the cup represents our, our fellowship, our, our sharing in the benefits of Christ's shed blood for us. Do you see that there in in verse 16? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Well, what are the benefits of Christ's shed blood? Friends, this is what the gospel, the good news of Christianity is all about. Because Christ's blood has been shed for sinners, our sins have been paid for in God's sight. That the penalty that we deserve, the judgment and the punishment that we deserve for our sins is done. It was satisfied in Christ's death. That the condemnation that we deserve has been removed. The shame that we feel for our sin, rightly, has been covered. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Christ shed his blood on the cross in our place, for us, since we could not bear to pay that price ourselves. And that that benefit is for all who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. I want to unabashedly invite you, if you are not a believer, I, I want to like shamelessly invite you to put your faith in Christ for the benefits, because they're really good. It is worth it to turn to Christ. Now, it might not be the benefits you want. Like the benefits you want might be life goes well from here on out. I'm never sad again. Uh, All my problems go away. Yet Christ didn't promise those benefits. Those benefits are not on offer, and I would be a bad preacher if I offered them to you for coming to Christ. No, that's not what's on offer. Something so much better is on offer. Being right with God being adopted into his family, loved as a son, as a daughter, forgiven forever, and the promise of life with God for eternity. If you're not a Christian, I'd love to talk to you about this more. Come talk to me about the benefits that are there in Christ's blood for you if you will turn away from your sin and put your trust in Christ. But, but that's not the only thing Paul talks about, right? Paul goes on, and he makes the point that the bread that we eat, he's talked about the cup representing Christ's shed blood, the bread that we eat is a sharing in the body of Christ. Also there in verse 16, the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Now, lest we think that somehow we're eating Christ's physical body, as the Roman Catholic Church wrongly teaches, Paul points out in that, in that next verse, that we who are many are one body. We are in fellowship with one another as Christians in a local church because we share the, the one bread that is Christ. So there is a vertical sharing in Christ that results in a horizontal sharing in one another, a horizontal fellowship. Our fellowship with Jesus creates a fellowship with each other. And, and Paul's not like making this up. This isn't just like creative Christian theology. 
No, he points out, look, this is the way sacrifices in the temple worked. Verse 18, those who ate the, the, the sacrifices in the altar, they, they shared in the benefits that were gained by those sacrifices. And, and so Paul says, look, judge for yourselves. You are sensible people there in verse 15. You know how sacrifices work. We don't know how sacrifices work because we don't do them anymore. But back then, sacrifice was something really common. Whether you were a Jew or a Christian or a pagan, like everybody sacrificed. Everybody understood how it works. And so he says, look, apply it to the pagan temple. When you eat at the temple of an idol, you are in fellowship with that idol. Now, now, he's really quick. He says, of course, the idol isn't anything, verse 19, verse 20. The idol isn't anything, but behind that idol is a demon. And Paul says, can you be in fellowship with Jesus and a demon at the same time? Can, can you be in, in fellowship with the body of Christ, the, the church, and idolaters at the same time? Of course not. No, you, you cannot. It would be like a married woman bringing another man home to share her bed. Not just a betrayal, but an adulteration of her marriage. No husband would stand for it, and neither will God. Paul tells us our God is a jealous God, and are we provoking him to jealousy? He saved us at the cost of his own son. God will not share us with idols, with other gods, with with false gods, with demons. And with that, Paul has finally kind of answered the question that he raised way back in chapter 8 about can you eat food sacrificed to idols? And he says, look, idols aren't real. But demons are. As Christians, we are not materialists. We do not think that the only thing that exists is matter. We understand that there is a spiritual reality and a spiritual world that is real even though we cannot see it. Christian liberty, says Paul, does not include religious meals at the pagan temple. Because, yeah, the idol on the shelf is just a piece of wood or metal. But behind that idol, there is a demon. Now, does that have anything to do with us today? I think it has a lot to do with us. You know, our idols today may not have their own temples or feasts, though some of them do. But they all still have demons behind them. Indulging your idolatry, Christian, is sitting down to a meal with the demonic. Christian, do you need more motivation then to say no to the idols that tempt you? Here it is, right? The the webpage that draws your eyes, the, the bank account that provokes your greed, the status symbol, maybe like a car or something, 
that calls to your pride. The, the relationship that demands your heart. Those are never merely web pages and bank accounts and status symbols and relationships. Behind our idols, just as much as behind theirs, stands the demonic world. There is a malign and hateful intelligence that intends your destruction. If you could see it for what it is, you would recoil and run in horror. But our idols never come dressed up like they really are. They come dressed up seductively. They, they glitter. They deceive. When you indulge your idol, whatever it is, no matter how beautiful it appears, you are sitting down at a table with demons. Paul says very clearly in verse 14, flee. Run away from that table like your life depends on it. Because it does. Flee your idolatry. Christ died for you, Christian, so that you don't have to eat at that table anymore. Haven't you spent long enough before you came to know Christ eating at that table? You don't have to eat at that table anymore. And Jesus will not let you eat at both. It's not the food but the fellowship that matters. Because those who eat with idols provoke God's jealousy. But that's not the only thing Paul has to say here. Much, much more briefly, second, this is the other reason why it's not the food, it's the fellowship that matters. Those who eat with Christ display God's Love. Let's look at verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, then do not eat it. Out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Okay, so Paul calls back to the, the slogan that you remember from chapter 6 that they were using to justify their own sexual immorality. And now he, he, he brings his point home positively. You guys, he says, you're all concerned about what's permissible based on your superior knowledge, based on your supposed spirituality. But the spiritual person 
isn't concerned about his rights, about what's permissible. The spiritual person is actually concerned for the good of others, verse 24. Now, now practically, for them, what does that mean? It means a religious ceremony at a pagan temple is off limits. But it also means, and they are free to eat whatever is sold at the marketplace. Even though, as we've talked about before, much of it was sold uh, uh, there in the marketplace in, in butcher shops that they were on the back of those pagan temples. Much of that meat had been sacrificed to idols. Paul says, no, no, eat whatever's sold there because idols really are nothing. Paul quotes Psalm 24, the Lord made the earth and everything in it. So receive your food with thanks. And that applies to a backyard cookout at your neighbor's or a dinner party they throw. Your freedom is not governed or judged by others, verse 30. But your freedom is guided by love. So your freedom isn't governed by other people's scruples or conscience. No, your freedom rather is guided by love. If you're with someone whose conscience is troubled for their sake, verse 28, for their sake, refrain. So, so I've talked about lots of different things that are idols in our lives. But I want to be really clear here. It's okay to have bank accounts. It's okay to have good jobs. It's okay to buy that car. It's okay to be in romantic relationships. But recognize them for what they are. Good gifts from God. To be received with thanks not worshipped. Paul sums it up in verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or anything, do it for the glory of God. In other words, whatever you do with your life, do it in such a way that brings praise to God. That's the way he's using the word glory there. That brings God praise. You know what brings God praise? Lives that display the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. What brings God praise is lots of Christians who are literally little Christs. People who remind the world of Jesus. Lives that give no needless offense to Jew or Greek or to the church, as he says there in verse 32. Lives that are live for the benefit of others, not your own. Paul kind of brings it all together, all the different threads of his argument when he concludes there in chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's not thinking of miracles. He's not saying go out there and do miracles. He's thinking about love, the love displayed on the cross a love that doesn't insist on its own rights, but gives itself for the sake of others. As I said, we're concluding our service this morning with a celebration of the Lord's Supper. This, this meal that we're about to eat is not a magical meal. It, it, it doesn't mean that as long as you eat it, you can go do whatever you want and you'll be protected. No, it's a meal that declares 
we have trusted in Christ. That we are the beneficiaries of his shed blood, his broken body. It's a meal that declares that Jesus has forgiven us, has, has adopted us, and now dwells in us by his spirit. It's a meal that declares that though we are not yet what we hope to be someday, we are no longer what we were. We were idolaters. We were people who served ourselves, but now we are Christians, people who have been loved by God with a love that has changed us into lovers of God rather than self, into lovers of neighbor rather than self. And so I ask you again, Christian, as you approach this meal and all that it declares, how is your life displaying the love of God? How is your life bringing praise to God by displaying the self-sacrificing love of his son? Is, is it displaying God's love in a joyful freedom that gives thanks to God and enjoys the many blessings that God has given us in this world? Or is it cramped by a legalism that tries to be spiritual by giving up what Jesus has not asked us to give up? Is, is your life displaying God's love in a, in a joyful freedom that does give up what Jesus asked us to give up, that gives up its rights for the good of others? Or is your life insistent on its own rights, loving itself more than others? Here's the message of chapter 10. People who eat with Jesus, people who are in fellowship with Jesus, love like Jesus. Recently, I was at a restaurant with some friends that caused me to reorder my top five restaurants that I've ever eaten at in my whole life. I took lots of pictures. It was truly amazing. I don't think it's the number one, but it's, it, it, it made something else drop out of the top five. And, you know, I, I knew I needed to take pictures of the food because it was amazing, but I knew I would forget. I, I knew what, I would forget what the food looked like or what, what it was that I even ate. You know what I won't soon forget? I won't soon forget the fellowship I had with my wife and our friends at that table as we talked and shared about some pretty deep things, as we shared our lives with each other, and as our conversation moved from laughter to tears, back to laughter again. It's not the food, but the fellowship that matters. And our lives reveal who we are eating with. There are only two tables. God is inviting you today to join him in the feast that is his table of love in Jesus Christ. And of course, the amazing thing is Jesus is both the host at that table and the meal. You will not find any better. Come, 
everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend your silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have eyes to see, that we would not be deceived by the the lies of the idols around us. We, we, we pray that we would not be taken in by their glitter, by the seduction, but that instead we would see that the beauty that is Jesus, and that we would desire the food that he alone gives, the food of himself, that leads us to you and to eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.